Welcome to Identity Matters, Digital Identity and the Evolution of the Internet, a special InnovationOz.com video podcast series brought to you by Ping Identity. From debating access to anonymity issues in online culture wars, to fighting cyber threats on the commercial internet, or in the delivery of government services, identity impacts everyone. In this series, we will speak to a compelling list of experts to trace the global online trends that have helped frame digital identity, and to understand the cyber landscape shifts that have shaped identity access management practices and zero-trust environments. Join us as we explore the philosophical and practical sides of identity, the fundamental issue at the heart of the internet. Hello. And welcome to Identity Matters, Digital Identity and the Evolution of the Internet, a uh, video podcast series Innovation Oz is running in conjunction with Ping Identity. Today we're joined by the Head of Asia-Pacific Architecture at Ping Identity, Steve Dillon, and Director Cyber and Identity at Deloitte Australia, Julie Gleeson. Welcome, Steve and Julie. Hi, James. Great to be here. All right, I'm going to start with you, Julie. Um, I guess we've been talking about digital ID in various forms since, I guess, forever, but it's really taken on some momentum now, both in the, the public sector and, and uh, across kind of corporate corporates as well. Just, just describe to me, when we talk about digital ID today, what are we talking about? How does it change the, 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 li- the day-to-day lives of citizens or customers in, in their day-to-day business? Yes. Um, so digital ID really, in a nutshell, is how you rep- represent who you are electronically to services that have sort of gone from the old school shop front to online services. So it's the evolution of um, the system that we all grew up with where you would sort of present physically with some identifications with your passport or whatever someone would note that it was you in the flesh there was a physical attestation there and then you were given some credential to represent yourself either online after that or um in the shop front in these days that physical um reliance is gone you would often enroll electronically so there's no real understanding of who you are so there needs to be digital means of understanding that how you bind your physical um, self to the credential that you present when you come into those digital services okay so we're we're talking so digital id we're really we're talking about a couple of things so credentialing yourself uh as you present either to consumer service or credentialing in terms of uh, a government role or a public sector role, credentialing yourself as someone within that government delivering a service. Is that a, is that a reasonable summary of that? It is. So the, the credential is there to say who you are and who you represent in your context. Um, that may be you as an individual, it may be you as a representative of a government organisation, it may be you in different forms in different contexts. That is separate to the question of what you can do with that credential. So kind of credentialing you is never sufficient in a digital context. It also has to be attached to kind of very deep policy and attribute-driven decisions about what you're allowed to do with that credential given the context that you're coming in. So I get. I mean, 
to, to look at digital ID, it sort of seems like it's it's been a holy grail. There's been a lot of uh, money invested in in digital ID simply because the returns, uh, the returns to government, or the cost savings to government, the the efficiency gains, the productivity gains, um, must be immense at that kind of fundamental change of how government delivers services and how citizens interact with government. The evolution of digital services is profound. The evolution of cloud-based hosting also of data and those services is profound and it is rapid. The evolution of digital identity is also happening. And, yes, there are massive um, efficiency gains. You don't need your shop front. You don't need your your physical kind of counters and then sort of manual handling of data. But by the same token, um, it's opening up new attack vectors because you do have data sitting there that you need to understand who is accessing and what adversaries might find interesting in that data. So... There are massive gains, and the gains just aren't in terms of efficiency. They're also in terms of understanding your business. If you have good visibility into who is accessing your data and why, you can really understand better at a government level or indeed at any commercial level um, how well your services are delivering to customer expectation. All right, Steve Dillon, uh, Asia-Pacific. Sorry, Asia-Pacific. Head of architecture. I mean, you you get around, you see uh, you, you see where where people are at in, in different countries around the region. Just firstly, talk me through kind of as a maturity level where where Australia sits in some of this, between, particularly in the public sector and the federal government. But you know, where do we sit here, um, and and how do we we compare with others in the region? So I think Australia is is actually doing quite well in terms of leading the region. Um, we do have existing initiatives that are relatively mature like TDIF, um, which allow citizens to uh, share their credentials with government service providers. Um, by, by the same token, I think we're also, and this isn't necessarily a bad thing, um, but we are following the lead a little bit of what's happening in, in Europe and some of the initiatives there. Okay, well, tell me this. We have, so we have a maturing digital ID infrastructure for one of, one of a better term. Um, and then we have the need for kind of zero trust, uh, zero trust models within, uh, large organizations. Let's talk me through that. I mean, if it, it used to be about perimeters and now it's no longer about perimeters, but if, if we know on the way in who is using our system and who's, um, you know, within the system, What's the, just talk through zero trust. Yeah, look, I mean, I, I feel like every person you talk to does have a different opinion or view on what zero trust really is. Um, for me, it's really, it's it's a logical extension of, of where security has been going for a long time. Um, so long before zero trust, people used to talk about defense in depth, uh, which is really just applying different controls at different layers to ensure that even if one control fails, you still have other controls that will potentially uh, pick up nefarious activity. Um, what Zero Trust represents in terms of an evolution from that defense in depth approach is really a, a shift in paradigm that's happened over the last 10 years where, you know, traditionally you had a lot of on-prem staff 
um, on-prem applications, you had traditional controls like firewalls, um, which were more based on geography. Uh, and so what's happened with the IT landscape over that time is that we we've distributed. So we're now doing a lot more in the cloud. We have SaaS applications are, are really the default these days, uh, and our workforce is distributed. And so some of those traditional controls like a firewall, for instance, aren't going away, uh, but they're not as, as strong as they used to be. They don't, they're not up to the task of, of securing modern solutions. And what we find is that really identity becomes the cornerstone of security more so now than ever. Um, where a user is, where the application is, are no longer reliable signals. Um, we do need to get a little bit more creative about what we're looking at in terms of identifying our users. So, so tell me this. Julie Gleason was saying just now that you know digital ID and and the you know some of the cloud based services actually just creates different, if not more, attack vectors. Um, from your perspective, what what are we uh, what, what what's what's Julie talking about? Yeah, Julie's absolutely right. Um, you know, if we, if we look at, uh, I can't remember the name of the initiative, Julie, you might remember this better than I do, but the, the digital health records initiatives from a few years ago, um, there, were, there was a lot of public skepticism around that initiative, um, and rightly so, because what we're really doing is we're uploading more data into um, into the cloud and, and into third parties now than we ever have. Um, but by the same token, I think this is this is a trend that has been continuing for a long time. Um, and as the industry and as governments mature, uh, the ability to to secure those records and use them judiciously has has come a long way. And Julie, I wonder we were talking just before we came on uh, a little bit about some some data sharing issues. Uh, just talk me through that in relation to digital ID. I guess there's there's two different things there's the citizen services and id related to that and then there's uh, government employees and ideas related to that and then the sharing of data whether it's uh you know a, a, to support a process you know a machinery a government process or it's it's to deliver a service does do digital id actually make the sharing of data uh easier within the framework of allowable data sharing um, implemented well and and considered well from a, what the business need is, what the user journeys need to be, um, digital identity can really make that a much better process across government. So government across agencies and inter-agencies have always had to share data, whether it was old school kind of paper or conversations or, you know, send ministerial stuff to um, parliament. There's there's never been a context where the machinery of government does not need to share data and knowledge across agency boundaries. Now that it's digital, the question is how, if you have an identity program that you know, has got its head around, well, issuing digital identities to your own workforce, how do you know that that perimeter, which is now quite amorphous, there are workforce needs outside your, you know, your traditional agency boundary, how do you do that? Um, and it always goes back to not looking at the perimeters but looking at the policies attached to data access. Where does that data go? Who needs to access it? How do you know that they have the right to access that data? And it 
really is that whole pivot to a data-driven, identity-centric policy which offers the best protection there. Um, That in itself is not bad either because if you are aggregating data in the cloud or across kind of boundaries where you're putting these policy controls, arguably that is a lot more sophisticated and a lot more controlled than the old school that I've sort of offered you a username and password and we think that the firewall is going to protect you because with this pivot comes an understanding that you need to have visibility into that data and who is accessing it and the controls are necessarily then much, much better. I'm going to uh, ask the, the same thing of, of you, Steve Dillon, and I guess I'll throw in the added complexity of, I mean, this, this whole ID layer or credentialing layer it seem, seems to enable uh, better kind of you know, integration, if you like, of, of private sector and, and public sector delivery of services. So, you know, banks and government and, you know, healthcare and banks and all, all of those things. So just talk us through that. Yeah, so I think one of the one of the interesting things that I've noticed over the last six months is that um, off, off the back of a lot of the high profile breaches that happened late last year and early this year, a lot of companies are taking a, a serious look at at their exposure to personally identifiable information, EII, and and there's really I think historically there's been this view that collecting PII is almost a good thing. Um, we want to know more about our customers, provide more personalized services, um, and use that data to enhance our analytics. Uh, and I think that there wasn't necessarily a, a level of good governance that went behind that. It was sort of more suck up as much as we can um, and use it where we can. And there are now board level directives coming down saying we need to be far more um, selective in what we're using and what we're collecting. Um, and what they're actively looking to minimize their exposure to PII. The reason I mention that is that companies are looking at things like TDIF and there's another initiative called Connect ID coming out um, as means of getting strong verification of identities but without necessarily having to, to store things like passports and driver's licenses within their systems. And so there's always going to be some risk with having your data stored with a provider be it government or a bank. Um, but I think that by being able to store that data with trusted institutions um, and then using that as, as an anchoring point is something that is overall a net win for security. Just, I guess, uh, a, tan- a tangent, uh, privacy being a tangent of security, I guess. Um, in a in the world that we've had described here around digital ID and zero trust environments and better credentialing and all that kind of thing, do we? Do you think privacy is enhanced or we have less privacy? It's a. It, it seems people, you know, the the people are generally uh, concerned of big brother issues in relation to digital ID, um, but there should there should be the ability to have the opposite effect of that. Julie, I don't know if you want to have a have a crack at this. Um, yeah, yeah, this is a very rich area. Um, the market is definitely moving towards protecting privacy very strongly. If you look at all the technologies at an authentication or credential level that are coming out, um, they follow the notion of 
what is sometimes termed self-sovereign credentials, where the user has the actual ability to choose what information they provide with their credential at any one time. So that's the actual um, direction of the authenticating um, kind of layer of identity, but remembering that the authentication is the credential that you present and there's all other layers of identity to show what you can do with that. Um, I think with the large-scale breaches that we've had in the last couple of years, which are not new, by the way, what is new is that it's now prominent in people's consciousness, which is kind of a good thing because it was always happening if you look at the kind of breach reports around. Um, there is a conceptual leak that businesses and government are suddenly understanding that privacy-sensitive personal information has to be viewed in terms of liability as much as it is in terms of business value. So what that tells you is that the authentication um, mechanisms have a really easy kind of pathway to um, helping fix that because you enrol for your strong credential that kind of attests who you are. Um, there is no reason that the businesses you are presenting this to need to get that same personal information from you. Your credential is your electronic passport that says, yes, your identity has been validated. We know your name, we know your date of birth, we checked it against your passport, we checked it against whatever. But all that information is not contained in the credential. It's a strong attestation. And therefore, the proliferation of privacy um, private information, PII in sort of old terminology, um, doesn't need to travel with you as you present yourself at the front door to digital services. Now, Steve mentioned TDIF and Steve mentioned Connect ID. Um, TDIF is the federal government's framework for um, issuing strong credentials or different levels of how you've been um, um, proven who you are. Um, the wonderful thing about that is that it is a government-led framework that sets basic ground rules and accreditation rules so you can have some confidence in the processes that the credentialers and identity providers accredited under that um, have followed. But private sector is coming on board with that as well because the market has desperately needed those ground basic rules so that citizens can trust and organisations can trust in the processes and the um, policies that, you know, provide security into that identity framework. Okay, so let me ask you this, uh, Steve. This is moving on just a little bit, but based, like, based on what Julie's just said, when we talk about the TDIF, the Trusted Digital Identity Framework, uh, the federal government framework. We have things like Connect ID. We have the MyGov ID. Can you just talk us through how those things fit together? What what are the moving parts? Yeah, so TDIF has been around for a while now. Um, it's really the, the federal government's means of allowing government agencies to, um, to store and share with consent user credentials. Um, Connect ID is, is a much newer initiative. It's actually not even out in Australia. It'll be coming out sometime this year. Um, but Connect ID is really an extension of this TDIF framework that allows more private institutions to 
uh, participate in the framework. Now, and in this case, it's initially it's going to be the big four banks, and then rolling out to to hopefully the rest of the banking community in Australia. All right. Look, I think I'm going to we're drawing to a close here. I wanted to finish up on a couple of points. I wanted to ask. Firstly, we can't have a conversation about tech without talking about artificial intelligence these days. So here comes the obligatory question. In in relation to what we've talked about uh, in terms of ID and uh, zero, zero trust architectures, uh, rogue actors using AI, like, d- d- is this becoming an immediately, uh, you know, immediate and present danger to cyber systems? Are we less secure in that environment? Yeah, it's it's certainly an interesting space. Um, I think that, 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 that there's almost two horizons on this. You know, AI is obviously a hot topic at the moment, and there have been some significant um, developments in this space recently that are changing the landscape. By the same token, AI and automation has been around for a while. And so we do have a lot of good controls that are designed to be able to tell the difference uh, between a human and a bot or, or an AI. Um, moving forward, though, it, it is going to be interesting to see what some of the, the newer developments look like and how the bad actors apply those. Um, certainly things like video deepfakes and uh in in particular the ability to to mimic voice is something that's really progressing fast and to be honest i don't think the industry has a good answer for that yet um but it is something i know that ping is working on and then i'm sure that a lot of security companies are looking very deeply into and julie oh i would just um echo what steve said and just with the observation that the cyber threat landscape is never static. So the minute we think we're up with control, we won't be because the threat actors are very sophisticated. They're often funded by nation states or serious criminal enterprise and it is global. So the onus is on everyone, including the software providers, including the kind of designers of systems and definitely the um, agencies or organisations who consume systems to understand that they need to keep abreast of evolving threats because the minute they stop, it doesn't matter whether it's AI or whether it's something else, they will be exposed. It's just the interconnected nature of the world we live in. All right, Julie Gleeson, uh, thank you very much for, for being with us today. And Steve Dillon, just we'll, we'll finish up on this. Any Any thoughts on... What's what's the the near term to medium term look like in terms of what you know the rollout of digital ID and the uptake of digital ID, particularly in government? Let's uh, start with you, Julie, and then go to Steve. So, putting control of credentialing back into the hands of consumers through notions like self-sovereign credentials or similar is a big trend that. Um, government needs to get its head around how how this fits in the ecosystem. The acknowledgement that connectivity is oftentimes these days machine-to-machine connectivity. So how do we make robust frameworks or evolve them to understand and control the way that machines connect into each other? And how do we pivot our identity systems to 
better suit the cloud landscape that everyone is moving into and understanding that identity needs to be attached to data rather than perimeter defences. And Steve Dillon, APAC Architect Chief at Ping Identity, will leave you to have the last word. Um, I think one of the things Julie touched on at, at various points through this was the the idea of, of, of sharing data and having those boundaries, um, but being able to monitor them and use user consent to to allow those boundaries to be crossed. Um, so I think that's that's certainly a, a theme at the moment with things like consumer data right um, and. The way we look at that is, is it's really an authorization decision. So being able to make rich authorization decisions um, in real time. I think this is something where if you look at authentication, say 10 or 15 years ago, where authentication for a lot of companies was very much fragmented. Uh, people had lots of usernames and passwords. We, we actually see authorization being similar in terms of its maturity at the moment. Um, a lot of organizations do authorization, but they do have a fragmented per application approach to it. Um, and I think what we're seeing now is at just at the start of that journey towards more of a centralized approach like we saw with authentication, where it becomes more of a central function, which allows you to get better control and visibility across your cyber estate. Um, so I think that's a current trend. Um, we, we've obviously also talked a lot about TDIF and Connect ID and the sharing of those verified credentials. I think that's a trend that will continue, particularly in light of organizations' interest in minimizing exposure to PIR. Um, and then longer term, I think what will be really interesting to look at is the, the decentralized identity space. Um, this notion of using verified credentials stored on a user's device uh, and they only expose what they need to, when they need to, for as long as they need to. All right, that's great. You're listening to Identity Matters, Digital Identity and the Evolution of the Internet, a video podcast series Innovation Oz is running in conjunction with Ping Identity. I want to thank Steve Dillon, Head of APAC Architecture at Ping Identity, and Julie Gleeson, uh, Director, Cyber and Identity at Deloitte Australia. Thank you both for joining Thank you, James. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Identity Matters, Digital Identity and the Evolution of the Internet video podcast series brought to you by Ping Identity. For more, keep tuning in to innovationoz.com forward slash podcasts or visit pingidentity.com.